Welcome to the Fort Vancouver Podcast, a program that provides a personal, behind-the-scenes look at Fort Vancouver National Historic Site, the Pacific Northwest's premier archaeological and historic site. I'm Greg Schein, the site's chief ranger and historian, and I'll be your host. Join me as we talk to staff, partners, and volunteers, and explore what makes this dynamic urban national park relevant today. In the process, we hope to help you forge your own personal connection to this very special and significant place. When it comes to the concept of behind the scenes at Fort Vancouver, nowhere is this more applicable than to the park's collections. That vast array of more than two million items, from artifacts recovered in archaeological digs to old photographs and textiles. If you visited the site, you may have seen several on exhibit at the visitor center and inside the fort. However, that's only the tip of the iceberg. In order to reduce the speed at which artifacts deteriorate, and to protect delicate objects from accidents and overuse, the majority of items in the site's collection are kept safe in a state-of-the-art collection facility on-site. Tasked with caring for this collection in such a way that it remains accessible to the public while ensuring the preservation of the objects is not compromised in any way, are two park employees, curator Tessa Langford and museum technician Heidi Pearson. In this episode of the Fort Vancouver Podcast, we'll talk with Tessa and Heidi and learn much about the extensive and significant collection curated here at Fort Vancouver. Hello, and we have with us today Tessa Langford and Heidi Pearson. Why don't you introduce yourselves and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do? I'm Tessa Langford. I'm the curator here at Fort Vancouver, and basically that means I take care of the collections. I'm Heidi Pearson, and I'm the museum technician here, and I help Tessa out with the collections and just uh, keep things neat and clean around all the museum spaces. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, you both have, have uh, uh, some, some very different backgrounds. I know Tessa has has been associated with the site for a while and and I think in comparison Heidi you're you're a relative newcomer I mm -hmm. think right could you talk yeah. a little bit about your backgrounds and what was it that that uh, brought you that that made that connection uh, with uh, with Fort Vancouver uh, I think I'm an anomaly among Park Service employees I've only been at one site and actually it was my mother who first got me into this role um, I started as a volunteer here at Fort Vancouver when I was 15 years old. I'm kind of against my better judgment. She was <laughs> in charge of the garden and dragged me here to help her work. So, so I began um, with our demonstration garden, learning about historic plants, and I very quickly became enamored with the archaeology that was going on at the site and the museum program. And so after a while, I moved indoors and started working for uh, David Hansen, who was the curator at the time. And uh, I think I started in the mid-1990s. Um, so I've been associated with the site for more years than I have not been, <laughs> time flies. Um, but it's been a great ride. And I've worked in archaeology and now um, kind of sidestepped into the collections management. How about you, Heidi? 
Well, um, one thing that really surprises me about Fort Vancouver is that I didn't hear about it until I was in my 30s. <laughs> and I'm from Seattle, so I'm not that far, I, I wasn't that far away. And this is such a wonderful site that I was really kind of sad that I hadn't heard of it before. Um, so I came here for my field school when I was in graduate school. And that's how I fell in love with Fort Vancouver. And um, when I finished my graduate classes, I came to work here at working for Tessa cataloging. And then I started working in the archaeology department and then worked my way back to working for Tessa as a museum technician. Maybe you could, you could both talk about how, well, I guess Heidi, you just did talk a little bit about it, but mm -hmm. how your education um, kind of prepared you for the positions that you have. Mm -hmm. um, mine was a little bit um, of a circular route. I started out actually in cultural anthropology, um, looking at the American medical system, actually, and how it treated immigrants. So it, it seems unrelated, um, but actually anthropology um, was good preparation for my job here. Eventually I moved into um, what was called business anthropology. That was investigating cultural issues in the workplace. And that was actually amazing preparation for the type of work that we do here because it really made me um, aware and critical, I guess you could say, of the way that we tell history how we interpret it to others and the types of things that we look at when we're um, studying the artifacts and the other objects. So um, cultural anthropology is my background in general terms. Um, and then I also, um, after my master's, got another graduate certificate in collections care just to kind of um, hone in on my management skills now. Um, I started my graduate, my uh, undergraduate degrees are in um, both anthropology and zoology. And as a most park service collections have more natural resources than we do here. Yeah. <laughs> we just have uh, the herbarium collection. Um, so I started off with that. Then I kind of spent some time traveling and working all kinds of different jobs. And when I went to graduate school, I concentrated on archaeology. And um, my thesis is on ethnicity and identifying ethnicity in the archaeological record, which is a really important um, aspect to this site. We have the employee village with multiple ethnicities. And because the material culture is also similar, it makes it really a challenge to look at that in the context of the fur trade here. So let's shift gears here a bit and, and talk a little bit about the collection. With the, uh, uh, the focus of the podcast is somewhat uh, looking at behind the scenes. I mean, it's, more, it's difficult to get any more behind the scenes, I think, than this, uh, this amazing collection that is here at, at Fort Vancouver. Could you uh, kind of introduce the uh, listeners to, to the collection and its, its breadth? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, our collection has been called our best kept secret, and that actually makes me pretty sad because we really want to try and get the word out to people that we we do have this unparalleled um, grouping of artifacts and historic objects. It really is a hidden jewel. Um, but the, you know, I've been to a lot of other museums. I've worked at a few others, and this really is a unique collection, and it has a lot of research potential um, to many different disciplines. 
Um, we're very proud of the fact that we have a large collection. Um, last year we passed two million objects and they're all stored here on site at Fort Vancouver. Um, basically, it is an archaeological collection. I, I think about 80% of it is um, artifacts from excavations here on the historic reserve. And within that, there are really three main time periods. Um, we do have some Native American objects, and these are mainly lithics, you know, stone things that survived well mm -hmm. in the ground. Um, this seemed to be mainly a pass-through area for hunting and fishing, uh, maybe some seasonal settlements. Um, but right here on the site of Fort Vancouver, we don't have evidence of, of a more permanent settlement. So while we do have Native American objects, um, it's kind of a small component of the overall, overall archaeological collection. Um, the fur trade is the, the big element, obviously, um, with the company here for 35 years. And, and the company being the Hudson's Bay Company. Right, the Hudson's Bay Company, the British <laughs> enterprise that, that ran the fort. Um, so the fur trade objects in the collection, um, I think, you know, Heidi will talk to in just mm -hmm. a minute about some globalization because that's really her interest. But it's imported articles from all over the world. This was really a fairly cosmopolitan post for being on the frontier. But there's also objects that reflect um, the, the goods that were made here on site. Um, this was quite an industrial post with blacksmiths and carpenters and tinsmiths and all sorts of trades going on. And so we get a lot of things in the collection that were made locally. Um, so those are the, the archaeological components, which mm -hmm. you say make up about... Uh, about 80%. 80%. The and then the third main time period would be the military. Mm. The U.S. Army arrived here in 1849, and we have a lot of the things that you would expect soldiers to leave behind, um, <laughs> you know, insignia mm -hmm. and munitions, um, but also a lot of domestic goods from the families that lived here. So with those those uh, artifacts then making up about 80% of the collection, mm -hmm. what... How would you break down the other, the remaining 20% of those, what, 2 million different uh, uh, items? Right. A lot of them are historic documents and objects. I think um, this has always been kind of an ignored part of our collection, um, both by the staff and by the public, but it's coming into its own finally. Um, the word is getting out that we have a professional museum program and we can adequately, adequately care for things. So we have some things associated with the fur trade. Um, a lot of um, family objects from the McLaughlin family. Of course, he was chief factor here um, for most of the fort's years. And we've been meeting with um, descendants of that family, and they've very generously donated a lot of things to our collection, um, early photographs, um, some furniture pieces, other things like that. Um, but also the military collection is growing um, from descendants of soldiers who were here or you know, officers, families who lived on the row and that sort of thing. And, of course, we have an archival collection as well, uh, records associated with this site. Now, in, in addition, I think, are, are some of the collection items from other sites as well, or are they just from Fort Vancouver? That's right. About 10 or 11 years ago, uh, we had a museum management plan, as we call it, done for the site. And it was really a watershed moment because we came to the realization that we had to choose 
whether we were going to be just a repository and hold these things, or whether we were actually going to function as a fully-fledged research center. And of course, we chose the research center <laughs> option, um, and that has evolved over the last decade. But we were set up as, a, as a, a center for fur trade research. So in addition to our collections from Fort Vancouver, we also hold some from other national parks. Uh, right now we have Fort Colville collection, which is part of Lake Roosevelt. And we have Fort Nez Perce um, from the Whitman Mission area. And then we have Bellevue Sheep Farm from San Juan Island, another Hudson's Bay Company outpost. Now, with such an array of, of different, uh, not only just different artifacts, but, but different items in the collection, do you want to talk a little bit about some of, some of the impressions that some of these have had, uh, had for you, uh, uh, Heidi, specifically mm-hmm. with the role of globalization? Yeah, I, I, I really enjoy the artifacts that illustrate that in a tangible way. So one of my favorite things to show people when I give them a tour of the collection is... A piece of coral from Hawaii juxtaposed with an English brick that has mortar made from that Hawaiian coral. And I just love the fact that that brick traveled all the way from England, 17,000 miles, stopped in Hawaii. They picked up the coral and brought it here to make mortar because there wasn't really an available source of mortar uh, nearby. So that's one of my favorite little artifact just juxtapositions. I also love the Chinese ceramics that we have. Um, it's really interesting that the transfer prints that we have from Spode that are so common here were initially made to imitate Chinese hand-painted porcelain, and, uh, both of which we have here. But um, the Chinese porcelain doesn't show up on the ship's manifests, so it was mm. obviously part of some gray market trading going on elsewhere before it was brought here, because it's not something that they ordered directly from the company. Mm-hmm. What are some of the uh, the items in the collection that, that you two feel are, are some of the more significant or, or perhaps even representative? Any jump out at you? Um, the superintendent always laughs when we get this question because she says curators shouldn't have favorite objects. It's like <laughs> a parent choosing your favorite child, but of course we do. Um, there are those objects that emotionally you connect with more than others. Um, that said, you know, archaeology is a lot about patterns, and so a lot of the information we garner from these collections, it's you know kind of wide view analysis about patterns, but. As far as specific objects, I really love the ones that connect to specific people. Mm -hmm. And those are pretty rare in a collection like this, but we do have a few. Um, One of which is a glass drinking tumbler um, that has a man's name etched in the bottom. And it's A.L. Lewis, who happened to be a clerk here in the 1850s. I've always wondered why he was so possessive and had to mark his belongings or took the company belongings. But, um, you know, I love those things that you know a specific person touched and you can investigate more about their life that way. Um, We also have some really surprising things and you um, get curious about how they ended up here, what their Mm -hmm. life history was before they came into the collection. Uh, One that comes to mind is a brick that we believe is Roman, from Roman Britain, um, that was probably looted from, you know, what was a ruin at that time already. Um, But one of the reasons we love it so much is that it has 
the footprint of a kitten embedded in it from when it was wet. You know, just bizarre things that somehow ended up here and have fascinating histories. Uh, one of my favorite items is the machine, the experimental machine gunner's helmet that we have. It's this very odd medieval-looking metal helmet from the World War One era. And uh, it was designed by a man who was an, a specialist in medieval armor. And there were a number of similar helmets made, none of which worked very well because they were modeled on something that was meant to deflect arrows and swords and not bullets. But it's a really interesting piece. It's just a complete oddball in our collection. <laughs> but there are, are several um, photographs, too, or I guess uh, uh, different types of, of early uh, photographs, daguerreotypes mm-hmm. and I think perhaps some tintypes. Are there any of those that are of uh, uh, particular significance? Yeah, there's one of Marguerite McLaughlin, who was um, Chief Factor John McLaughlin's wife. It's a daguerreotype, and actually it's the only known image of her that anyone's been able to discover, and that one's pretty special. Along with that, we have pictures of other members of the family, their daughters and granddaughters, and it's kind of fun to trace um, their look through time and and figure out who's related to whom. One of my favorite items in the photograph collection are pictures of animals. I love mascots. mascots. Yeah, Yeah, the army uh, had a lot of mascots over time, and there's pictures of everything from raccoons to bears and dogs. Of course, lots of horses, but uh, the mascot pictures always make me laugh. There's a great picture of this one mascot sitting on the back of a horse. It's a little pug, and he's sitting up (laughs) on his haunches on the back of this horse. Those just uh, it just brings a human element to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Now, of the of those two million artifacts that, or, or I'm sorry, two two million items that are in the collection, they're not all on display. Uh, that would not be possible, would it? No, not even close. Um, unfortunately, our site does lack a really good exhibit space, and we hope to get more of that type of space in future, so we can show a lot of the collection. So we've had to adapt and be a little creative in how we do share these objects with the public. Um, but the web catalog online is one of the ways we can do that. Um, both you know, records and images are online. And then we try and do some rotating exhibits, uh, small scale type things. But we offer public tours of our collection facility, and that's one of the ways we can show it to people. Now, now for those artifacts... Uh, let's take specifically artifacts, so archaeologically recovered items. Uh, we There are a few of those on display in different places in the park, but perhaps you, you two could walk us, walk us through what is the process from an artifact that's found in the ground during an archaeological dig to the point where it is put on display. What's kind of the behind the scenes, the process behind that? Because my guess is it's probably... Uh, a little more elaborate than, than most folks would uh, would imagine. Well, one of my favorite things that Tessa always likes to say is that archaeologists are only a blip. <laughs> so the object has been around before the archaeologist. It was used by someone, and then it was dropped or lost, and it got buried under the ground. And so it's had a, had a long life before the archaeologist came along. When it's carefully excavated, it is then um, sent into the lab. In the lab, we record it, we clean it, we analyze it, and we try to get as much information out of the object as possible. 
one of the most important things about lab work is making sure that the artifact is um, carefully prepared without over-preparing it. Oftentimes we have um, artifacts from the 70s and other eras that were cleaned so thoroughly that a lot of the information on them is lost. Uh, what would be an example of, of that? Um, one really, one example that always sticks out for me, and it sounds kind of mundane, but shotgun shells. Uh-huh. <laughs> we have a lot of those, and they're copper, and they would I, they would bathe them in acid, uh-huh. which makes them turn pink, but it also often etches away a lot of the... Um, the date, the dates, the date stamps, oh, okay. and other stamps that you know. The bottom of a shotgun shell can tell you a lot about where it came from, when it was made, mm-hmm. and all of that. So those, that's a really important information that can mm-hmm. be lost that way. And if you can extrapolate that to other artifacts with even more delicate details, mm-hmm. that it's, can be lost. Yeah, it's kind of a fine art getting something clean, you know, removing dirt and rust, but not affecting the original fabric much. The, the steps that you're describing, uh, going to the lab is a pretty significant one. Now, is that sent off to a lab somewhere, or are those facilities, uh, is that, would that artifact be kept here on site and those, those uh, uh, that laboratory work done here? So all of our lab work is done here. Sometimes we'll have a special um, item that's sent away for conservation to someone who's a real specialist, but most of our lab work is done right here, and we have a number of not only staff, but students and volunteers who help us to get that lab work done. And because that's such a huge part of the excavation, it actually takes more time than the excavation itself. It's really great to have all that help. Yeah. The, the general formula that we kick around is that for every hour you're in the field, it's five hours of lab work. Wow. to prepare things. So mm-hmm. we're, we might dig in the summer, but the rest of the year is definitely indoors <laughs> getting ready. Yep. So then once the artifact is cleaned and prepared and tagged and everything, then I, then we um, digitize the information. So we put it into our computers, and then we put it into a database, and we print tags, and then we um, properly store it for future use. One of the keys of having a collection like this is to be able to use it. You know, a lot of people think that museum collections just sit in a big warehouse and collect dust and no one ever looks at them. And here that couldn't be further from the truth because we really do actually go and find things quite often. I'll find myself somewhere in the collections room digging through a box looking for a particular artifact Mm -hmm. because I need it for something or I'm helping a researcher. So it's really important to go through those processes so that those artifacts are ready to be used in the future because they really belong to the to the people. How does the identification process work? Well, it depends on the person. Um, I love to use the internet. You can you would be amazed at all the information that's out there. And um, you know, I've looked on there for everything from light bulbs to clock parts, trying to identify just a little small item, you know, just to narrow down um, where it comes from and the date and that sort of thing. We also have a huge reference collection, um, old catalogs, old um, parts catalogs for um, wagon manufacturers and horse tack manufacturers and things like that. Those are incredibly useful. And um, you just use as many sources as you can to 
get as much specific information as is possible about an artifact. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is just practice, practice, practice. You know, if you do this every day, (laughs) you can start to identify, like, patterns on ceramics or that sort of thing. But the size of this collection and the amount we recover annually, there are always new things. And like Heidi said, even with our extensive library, the, you know, the, we're challenged on almost mm-hmm. a daily basis, and and the web really has changed the way we research because so much more is available quickly now. Mm-hmm. So we, we've taken our, our uh, artifact from the ground through the lab work, the cleaning, and then the labeling. What would be the next step then before an, an item would go on display? Well, a lot of what we do is rather mundane data management. But like Heidi said, that's the critical part. And so we do, I mean, we triple check. It's a very redundant system to make sure that we can quickly access objects again. Um, But basically the next step is that they are housed then in our climate-controlled facility. Um, But if something's going to go on exhibit, uh, we'll usually photograph it first, just in case, um, multiple views. And then Heidi is an expert at mount making, and so we have a workshop here on site where she actually crafts um, plexiglass or you know, other sorts of mounts. Mm-hmm. One of the important things about mount making is uh, creating a mount that not only looks like it's invisible but protects the artifact from not only the mount itself, but from any kind of jostling or things like that. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of um, you ha- padding, and you have to use inert materials, things that aren't going to react with the artifact and cause any sort of damage, things that aren't going to off-gas and damage an artifact that way. What would off-gas? Paint. Oh. So if you're going to use painted objects inside of a museum case, they need to cure for a long period of time so that they're not going to do any damage. It also depends on the type of artifacts you're going to put in a case and what things are going to be in there together. So, for instance, a textile would be much more delicate, and you'd have to be much more careful about what goes in with that than uh, perhaps a ceramic. And, of course, when we're planning an exhibit, this is one of the most fun parts of our job because you're not just randomly picking artifacts to put out. Um, there's mm-hmm. all the, the thematic decisions and research that goes into it. You know, How do you intellectually interpret a certain subject with objects? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. But one thing that, that's hard is that some of the really interesting objects are metal, but they're just not that interesting to look at. <laughs> <laughs> not beautiful. <laughs> They're not the best display objects. <laughs> Interesting. Now, uh, uh, Tessa had mentioned earlier the uh, value of some of the new technology. Has has uh, some of the new technology here in the 21st century, has it, had, has it made uh, your job significantly different in any way? Um, the data management that I mentioned has become easier. You know, we can um, access things more quickly and more easily. But I think the way technology has really changed our job is that it allows us to do more types of outreach. Um, I mentioned the web catalog, but there's other ways we can try and share the collection with the public. Uh, Right now we're working on some lesson plans for elementary school children that incorporate archaeological artifacts. Um, There's other sorts of web features that we can do, virtual exhibits. Um, We can more easily correspond with researchers and, and give them Um, information they need without them having to visit the site or to at least prepare them to visit the site. 
Um, you know, we can, um, Heidi especially is very good at graphic design and we can more easily put out newsletters and booklets and other publications, you know, little bulletins that incorporate collection items. So it's just given us more options. So these two million items in the collection, where are they kept on site? That must be one of the uh, the biggest secrets <laughs> and behind the scenes issues because the visitors aren't uh, they're not they're not directly visible to to the visitor. Where where are these things kept? Yeah, we're hidden in one of the historic looking buildings. Um, there's a large warehouse uh, within Fort Vancouver called the Fur Store, and historically it was where the pelts were prepared for shipment out. Um, but our offices are in there, and the second floor is our collection facility. And like I said, it's um, environmentally controlled for temperature and humidity. And that is where the bulk of our collection is kept. Uh, also, you know, we have about 6,000 items that are on display permanently as furnishings in the buildings on site. Okay. Now, uh, are, are people able to visit that second floor facility, the, uh, uh, the collection area? How, how would one go about doing that? We do tours by appointment. So if someone is interested in coming in or bringing a group, they can always contact us uh, through email or phone, and we're happy to do that. We generally do three or four a month. Uh, that way. We also, every September, have an open house. That's the time of the year when Washington and Oregon have their Archaeology Month celebrations. So we try to participate in that. And at other times of the year, we'll have special exhibit case displays out, you know, for events or other things. Okay, thank you very much, Tessa and Heidi. It's been a, been a pleasure to, uh, to have you here today, and uh, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Greg. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Fort Vancouver podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed this behind the scenes journey and that we've been able to help connect your interests to the meanings inherent in the park's many resources. For more information on the park's programs and events, please visit our website at www.nps.gov forward slash FOVA or call our Visitor Information Desk at 360-816-6230 during regular business hours. Thanks for listening. <laughs>